Hey, this is Ira Elliott, and you are listening to The Rad Dads Show. Hey, all you rad dads out there. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Rad Dads Show, the parenting podcast where we ask inspiring dads the question, what does it mean to be a rad dad? If this is your first time listening to the show, welcome. And if you've been here before, thank you so much for coming back and for the ongoing support. As always, this podcast is brought to you by Rad Dads Edmonton. You can find out more about what we do to build community, empower dads, and promote positive parenting over at raddadsyeg.com. I'm Brett, and today I'm bringing you a really upbeat and fun interview with Ira Elliott, drummer for Not A Surf. For the uninitiated, you probably remember Not A Surf's hugely successful song, Popular in the mid-90s, but many don't realize that the band went on to put out masterpiece album after masterpiece album over the next 25 years or so, and they're a band I truly consider a treasure. My wife and I have traveled all over the world to see them play, and we were actually at the show that became the Live at the Neptune record. Needless to say, this one was a huge honor for me, and I really enjoyed the opportunity to dive into dad stuff with Ira. He's a dad to one daughter, Vivian who he and his partner had when he was 48. He talked about some of the initial reservations he had becoming a parent and how he was worried about losing some of his identity in the process. But he acknowledged in hindsight that was a misguided fear and went on to tell us how parenthood has changed him in so many positive ways. We spun off on a few tangents here and it definitely took us in some great directions. I talked to Ira about happy accidents and drumming and on a related note, And as a fellow Beatles superfan, it was so exciting to talk about how Ira considers himself a Ringoist. And you'll have to just listen to find out what that means. We also dove into the taboo subject of bad Beatles songs, which Ira is compiling into what he calls the Brown Album. And he told us what's new with Not A Surf, including a new album that's nearing completion, the recent 20th anniversary of their seminal album, Let Go, and the effect the pandemic had on the release of their latest record, Never Not Together. And Ira's also the drummer for Bambi Kino, an early 60s Beatles tribute band that aims to recreate the band's days in Hamburg before they broke it big. So we chatted about some exciting plans on that front as well. This was just a really positive conversation, which totally fits with the aesthetic of Nana Surf overall. So what are we waiting for? Let's get into it. Here's Ira Elliott of Nana Surf on the Rad Dads Show. Ira, I want to thank you for joining me on the Rad Dad Show. I'm really stoked to talk to you today. But before we get started, I want to ask, who are you? <laughs> I, uh, that's a great question. Uh, well, I'll try to keep it down. You know, it's, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll try to keep it short. I am a musician. I play uh, drums in, uh, I guess I'm best known for playing the drums in the, in the Not A Surf rock group, uh, a band that a lot of people know and a lot of people don't and that's kind of the way i like it um i've been a drummer all my life i started playing the drums when i was about uh, 10 years old i had a sort of a love for the stage i studied uh acting all through my teens and continued to be a drummer and i was thinking about perhaps a life on the stage and then i uh i ran off with the circus when i was about 20. i did about three semesters of college and i joined a, a garage rock band called the fuzz tones yeah and then that was kind of my first band and then in, i did my first 
American European tours and when I was around 21, 22. And so I've kind of become a lifer musician. That's really the only kind of job I've ever known is just being the drummer in a band. I've made my whole life trying to be a valuable uh, player in a band, like I'm the guy you want behind you. Uh, and uh, and so I've done that. And then to various success over the years through my 20s, I struggled in and out of various bands and, you know, three steps forward, two steps back. But yep. along the line, when I was in that band, the Buzz Tones, back in 1983 or four, I met these two young guys. I was 21 or like 20, 21. And these guys were like 17. They were fans of the band. And uh, I met them then. I had a video, <laughs> uh, I'll go into later, but uh, so time passes and I see these two guys over the years, they're starting their own band, they're in a rehearsal studio, hey guys. And then in 1994, 10 years later, I get a call. Oh, I, I, uh, I long story, very short. I get a cassette from the two of them and they got this band. This is like their third band together. And they gave me this cassette, they need a drummer. I'm like, all right, and I put it in. As a matter of fact, at the time when I got the cassette, I was like, you know, this drumming thing, I'm over it. I'm going to play, I'm going to, I'm going to pull a Dave Grohl yeah. and I'm gonna throw the, I'm going to start playing the guitar and writing songs because I want to be a front man. Um, but then I got this cassette from this kid, uh, Matthew was his name. And he sent me <laughs> this cassette and it's a little red orange thing. And I put it in and I'm listening through it and I'm like, oh, all right, not bad. And the B side, I'm like, that's like 10, 11 songs on it. And they were all kind of really weird and really weirdly catchy yep. and each had some little deep hook and I couldn't get it out of my head. Well, and then, so it was obviously it was Daniel and Matthew. And yes. I, I knew them. I met them in 84. They, you know, 10 years go by. Uh, and then, so I became, you know, and then within short order, I joined the band in let's say January or February. And by December we were recording our first record. It went off like a bullet. And then we've been able to spin that out and we're in like year 25, I think at this point, I'm not, I don't even want to calculate, but we're now 25 years deep into being a band, a touring recording band. We've just recorded, I we just finished doing tracks for, I think, what's our ninth studio album. I've lost track. It's like who, I don't, there was no rule book. No one, right. I never like, you know, I wanted to be an astronaut and I became an astronaut. That's how yeah. I my life. Well, and it's so interesting that you, um, so a couple of things that you said, it's interesting that you kind of said it, you were kind of at that point where it kind of felt like, oh, I might do something different here. And yeah, then myself, yeah, yeah. And then this happens, um, and obviously, you know, you know, probably people who are listening to this interview, well, maybe not, but probably a lot of people know. Not a surf sort of got huge with that first album, right? You recorded oh, uh, with Rick Kasich, oh, and they, they know the story. Popular got huge, and um, that just set you on this trajectory. And it's you know, it's funny. You said earlier that we're a band that a lot of people know, and a lot of people don't know, yeah. and. I think that's actually one of the things I really love about your band. Um, it it almost feels like my little secret. I'm a huge fan. Um, you know, I'm not going to uh, hide that from you. I, you know, I have a new t-shirt, my friend. Well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and I've been a big fan, you know, basically ever since I, I heard your band, I got into you guys and I don't want to make this about me, but I got into you guys in the wait as a gift era. So I knew popular, but I was like a lot of people where it was like, Oh, I remember that song being huge. I used to sit in my parents' um, basement and we had a VCR. And what I would do uh, when I was a kid was we would watch much music, which is like uh, MTV, but Canada, right? And popular would come on or a song I liked would come on and I would hit record and I'd kind of make these mixtapes, but the mixed videotapes. And I remember having popular on one of those tapes and just like watching it over and over. And like as a kid too, like what a 
interesting video, you know, this high school um, drama and the spoken word. And it was just, you know, the catchy chorus. It was perfect. And, you know, then I kind of lost track of you guys. And a, a good friend of mine who I, um, you know, was playing with a playing in a band with at the time, his name's Justin Renner. Um, he was like, Hey man, do you remember that band? Not a surf. I'm like, yeah. He's like, well, they have this album, the weight is a gift. And like, you should check this out. I think you'd really like it. And I basically just like fell in love with you guys. And then I'm sure you've had this experience too. Then to be able to go into the back catalog and realize, Oh my God, they have this like masterpiece let go here as well for me to dig into and proximity effect. Anyway, you know, I'm a, I'm a big fan and uh, have followed you guys, you know, ever since that time, you know, my wife and I have traveled to see you guys. We've, um, you know, I, I kind of like can mark moments in my life based on, you know, not a surf records. And uh, you're just very important to me for lots of reasons. And again, I, I don't want to make this about me. But I got goosebumps because really what you're what you're describing is what as a member of a band, you want everyone to be able to tell a story like that. Like, I know I'm the only person within 10 miles who know who the hell you guys are. Yeah, It means a lot to me. And that's like, yeah. you can't get a higher compliment than that. You can't. And, and I don't mean that to well, take I away from like... Any, the... I don't need any of that stuff. That is, that's, that's it, man. Well, that's awesome. Yeah, it's nice to hear that. And, um, and I, I really... live by. <laughs> yeah, and I, I really mean it. And I don't mean to... It, for it to take away from, you know, your, your guys' accomplishments. You guys are obviously big and you've you've been able to make a career out of it. You've put out, you know this, I know you know this, you guys have put out amazing records and just continue to do this, um, you know, kind of one after the other. And I can't wait to hear what's coming too. Um, but where I was to kind of connect it back to where I was going with that is it does feel like this little secret. And you guys have this really nice community around your band because of that. Like there's kind of this intense connection to the, the emotional content of the songs and the lyrics and the music. And whenever I've seen you guys too, you're, you come out after the show and you, you know, kind of connect with, with yeah. the fans. And um, that's just a really cool thing as a listener to, um, to break down that barrier too. So, you know, I want to thank you for that too. Oh, that's well, why else do it? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's really the core of it. You know, this sort of community, you know, it's communication and, you know, Matthew to, to have a songwriter like Matthew, it's, you know, that's the, you know, that's the the central thing of you know, Matthew's beautiful means of communication is the way he puts uh, melodies, on, lyrics on melodies and hangs them in the air. Like that's a, you know, that's the whole central diamond in Not A Surf. And, you know, my job is peripheral. I just have to kind of put a frame around that. Uh, but that's a great, as a drummer, that's a great job to have because I can, I can really do, you know, I'm not under any constraints. I can you know, speak naturally and, and drums are a communication instrument. So as totally instrument, like guitar or bass, like you're, I'm talking really. So, you know, I have a freedom of expression. I know, you know, where I fit in this frame. It's a, it's a great, uh, artistically speaking, it's a really nice place to be and especially with two of my best friends as well. Yeah. And as like, as a musician listening to you guys too, though, they're like, you know, you kind of said, oh, like, you know, Matthew's part is really central, which I, I agree with, right? Like mutant. Well, that's uh, the emotional core of the song is yeah. what his beautiful, beautiful voice and what he says and everything, yeah. you know, everything else paints a picture around that. That's how I, that's how but, I visualize. Yeah. It puts it in a, in the right context though. Cause you can lose that if it's, if the, you know, the drummer's trying to do too much with the song. Like I know you're a Beatles fan and, and this is kind of what, I mean, people uh, praise Ringo for like less is more. Right. And, and um, 
knowing when to do the right little things. And uh, I can see you smiling because I know <laughs> I'm going to get on, you off on a, on a tangent. I, I, I knew it was going to come up. I yeah. my, my Ringo snare drum is sitting right here. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. So tell, like, well, tell me about this snare drum before I continue. Oh, well, I, I am, like you said, I'm a, I, I live my life. Uh, I'm a Ringoist. I don't believe in any deities. I don't subscribe to any religious affiliations, but I'm a Ringoist. Yeah. Uh, Ringo taught me everything I need to know. And this is a 1965 Ludwig snare drum in a slightly different color than Ringo's, but the same spec, same wood, same depth. Uh, you know, so that's the most Beatles sounding snare drum. I got a, I put a calfskin head on it. It's not even a plastic. Wow. It's like a calfskin head on it to get that nice warm shot out of it. That's a, that's, that's the, that's pure Ringo right there. So how did that how did that yeah. snare come about? Like, is have you had that snare a long time? Or I, well, no, I, what I what happened was I, uh, I when I lived in Brooklyn a couple of years back, I um, there's a great music store there called uh, called Main Drag, and I would go in and they had a big floor and they would get a lot of instruments in and out, uh, vintage instruments. Yeah. And one day I walked in and there was a drum set this color, which is called Blue Oyster Pearl. Ringo's was called Black Oyster Pearl. Hmm. Uh, and so there was a beautiful kit sitting on the floor. It didn't have the snare drum. It was just bass drum and a couple of drums, which I bought the next day because it was so <laughs> gorgeous. Again, 1965 issue. And wow. uh, so I had that for a while. And I'm like, you know, I went on eBay and I typed that in. And, you know, some months went by and one came up and yep. I bid on it and I bought it. And at the time, it was probably one of the most expensive drums. I single drum was under a grand at the time. Now, not so much. If you try mm -hmm. to find one. Now, if it's less than 1500 I'd be surprised. But I was able to score it at a good price to match that kit. So I have basically awesome. a perfect uh, era Beatles kit, all, you know, the right drum. It's like it's my yeah, it's my Stradivarius. I just love it. And this is what you play in Bambikino, probably. We haven't talked um, about Bambikino. Well, but... In Bambikino, in Bambikino, which is a Hamburg era Beatles band, I play. Oh. A, I tend to play a smaller kit because Ringo played. He started with a jazz kit, basically 20-inch bass drum, 12-inch rack tom, 14-inch floor tom, yep. which is kind of a smaller club jazz kit. Uh, he later moved to the classic 22, 13, 16 combo, which became like the basic rock drum set as yep. rock got bigger. But remember, they were a club band, a bar band. Yep. So when I do Bandikino, I try to play a smaller drum set, but just louder. He just yeah. hit it hard. Amazing! I, well, I'd love to see I, you guys because you guys are the same, all the same drums yeah. in those sizes as well. So yes, I do have that kit as well. I love it. I love the commitment to the early Beatles. I'm a big Beatles fan too. And um, when I first, actually, one of my early memories of kind of like getting into music, and I'm a guitar player, um, which you can see behind me. But uh, I I started being interested in drums, and an early memory I have was sitting on my sister's bed. We had um, the Please Please Me album. And I would have the two chopsticks and a couple pots and pans and just learn, like I learned how to do like kind of four, four, the rock beat to love me do. And I would just play it over and over and over. And it's just like holds such a special place in my heart, that early Beatles. And of course, um, when I was in school too, uh, an anthology came out and then I got to hear, you know, it's really easy to, you didn't have to go find bootlegs and stuff. You had access to all these early Beatles songs. Anthology one is just so amazing. And um, anyway, like I, I love that era of the Beatles as well. Just so raw. And, I want to show up my right over here. Yeah. Uh, is my, uh, these are all my, this first two upper boxes are all Beatles records. Those are all wow. my intent, my very, very intense completest Beatles collection. It's really off the chart. So do you have one that's like, um, like a holy grail type record like 
No, no, no. I don't collect anything really special. I collect, okay. I cl uh, well, I mean, the hardest one to get, I think of all of these was probably a, um, a mono white, a British mono white album. They yeah. tend to be pretty rare uh, among Beatles. Collect. My, my, my collection is really all the American albums of the, of the, from, from yep. that period, all the original American albums, all the original British albums and all yeah. the albums they released uh, subsequently, all the, you know, everything that every year in the seventies, they would release something. So I have all the official releases, a really nice uh, original copy of all the original uh, British stuff and oh uh, everything in mono, everything in mono. I don't own any stereo Beatles before anything before Pepper. I can't listen to in stereo. I'm one yeah. of those. Yeah. It doesn't sound right to me in stereo. So all the early ones in stereo. So that's my collection. I don't really collect like, you know, butcher. I'm not yeah. into like butcher cover, that kind of specialty thing. Those are fun, but uh, I like the records. I don't care about the covers. I just want those. I want to put that nice piece of vinyl down yep. on it and like, uh, man, I know the stereo sounds great. Too. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, amazing. That's awesome. Um, yeah, I'm kind of the same way. I'm not a huge record collector. I've got my stuff here. I've got a few Beatles records. I've actually got a, um, what I believe is a first um, U.S. pressing of With the Beatles. That was my aunt's. Um, and I used oh, yeah. to listen to that a ton as a kid too. It's kind of scratched up. It's not in great condition. And of course, this is what people did back in the day. I'm sure when you're record shopping, you see it, but they put their initials on the sleeve and, you know, so it's got that, but to me, it's my aunt's initials. So oh, what can I say? Um, I'm a lifelong, I'm a lifelong guy. And Ringo was really important to my whole mindset still to this day. Like I call it the Tao of Ringo. That is Ringo was not technically great you know yep. uh, you know you see people like kind of dismiss him because he's yep. not Neil Peart but that's not what drummers do yeah drummers don't Neil Peart is a is an exception the rule is Ringo that is your job is to go and get people up and dancing yep you know, you're, and he was a great he had been trained as a as a uh as a show in a show band with Rory Storm and the Hurricanes yep. for years they played uh, these summer camps where they were they just had to entertain people put on a big show and get people to jump up out of their chairs and dance around something that pete best couldn't do but ringo could do in eve very quite easily yeah which is, you know, so he used his basic skill set which was not advanced but very direct to motivate the band and that's that's it that's it you use the skill set you have to and apply that to the music you get and that's it. It's a very simple combination, but uh, so it's beautiful. So, you know, he shows you that, you know, this sort of technical virtuosity is yeah. completely overrated. It doesn't mean anything. Well, and it could be amazing too in its own way, but. Yeah, absolutely. But for making music in the context of yeah. the artistry where you have to communicate with other musicians and make something that's part, you can solo out and do all kinds of fancy stuff. But in context of a piece of music, the drums, generally speaking, have to be out of the way and supportive because you don't want to hear the drums. You want to hear what the guy's saying. You want to hear the melody in the song. And you know, you can tap dance all over that if you want to. You know, if you're in the Dave Matthews band, yep. you can it skill saddle <laughs> your way through everything, I guess. But yeah, I'm not yeah. one of them. Yeah. And, and so I guess where we got on this topic um, was, I was kind of, you know, I, I guess I was maybe paying you a high compliment by saying like, in, in that way, I feel like your role in the band is, it really stands out to me as a, a musician too, that um, what you do with the drums is, is so um, complimentary to the songs. And I want to tell you one, just one song that I've always like, ever since I heard this song, it stood out to me, this one little thing that you did. And yeah. I don't know if anyone's ever told you this. I, I you know, I've talked to my friends about it. And they're like, oh, I, I never really. I, gotta, I feel like I got to put a seatbelt on. Go ahead. 
get ready for this. Um, <laughs> so the song is Are You Lightning? Oh, yeah. And I, I really like the the kind of like slower, not a surf songs for, yeah. from a drumming perspective. Like, I think that's a hard thing to do. Um, but right when uh, you're going into the bridge, there's a, it's like right before it does a do, 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 right. You, you go on the two, you go from the, the hi-hat to the yeah. ride. On a, right. On in the, the middle, in the middle the of two, a phrase. Right in the middle of a phrase. Interesting. And it is like, every time I hear it, I'm just like, oh. It just oh. like speaks to me in that part. It it brings. You'll have to listen to it afterwards. But um, it, it just one of, the, one of the main things I've learned as a drummer and not a surf. One of the skills I've really tried to master as a drummer. I can, it's very common when you get to the end of any kind of a musical phrase, you're moving from one part song to the other part of the song. It's very common for drummers to well play a fill of some kind. It could be a little anything a little but but some little yep. like a comma in the sentence or a you know a little yes. marking one part to the other and there's of course a million ways to do that and in one of the skills i've tried to develop as we arrange songs is just how little can i do yep. to get from part a to part b maybe i don't even have to do anything i but change from one to the other i don't have to play a bing i don't have to crash i can just move from the hi-hat to the ride symbol in a completely uncomplicated way yeah. and just have this new texture appear. And it's something that until you actually do it and, and cause you, your natural tendency is to want to make yep. a big fuss at that moment, but just to move from one to the other, it's kind of like a weird Zen experience. Like, Oh, all I have to do is change over and you, and then something happens. It's wild. Yes. It's, uh, it's something that most drummers maybe never really think about, but in the context of not a surf, I started to try to work it in where I do as little as I can to move from part to part. Um, and it's really nice. And, and I, you know, I don't remember that specific point that you, but I'm going to go back and listen. I don't know yes. if that was intentional or, you know, knowing me, it was probably a, a, just a happy accident that happened. So I don't Well, know. that's what I always wondered was like, like maybe it was an accident. But uh, yeah, you know, it was a while back and I can't really tell you. I'd have to go back and listen to it, whether it's I I would be able to tell whether something we arranged or something that just happened. I'll, I'll have to go back and it, it doesn't report, feel I'll, go back, I'll report back to you. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it doesn't feel to me like um, like it's totally not intuitive, but when it happens. It's like, oh, I just, I love it so much. So anyway, I wanted to That's share that example, one with you. So. things that are not technically, yep. you know, just moving from one sound to the other has, can have this incredible dramatic effect because it wasn't over yep. on. It was very small. And yep. that can, you know, that's one thing you learn. Drummers are always trying to draw big. <clears throat> Sometimes draw small. That's a very nice point. Thank you well, very we much. Were we were talking about uh, the voice and the power of the voice. And it's kind of a similar thing. Like when a singer can just, they change their tone just that little bit, or all of a sudden they get that little growl or whatever it is. It's, you know, it's that same thing yeah, that exactly. people's antennas for sound is very, very, very intense. And people hear these little changes. You can, I, as a Beatles fan, I'm thinking about, you know, there's certain Beatles songs where you can hear Paul McCartney smile yeah. or laugh yes. when certain things. You can almost hear him like you hear he's laughing in certain lines. And you see, I'm, yeah. uh, this one I can't think of right now, but that thing you can hear someone laughing while they're yeah. crying when they're singing. You know, like someone feeling something it goes right through the microphone into our. Yeah, it's an amazing uh, uh, feedback loop. Yes. Oh man. Yeah. So thanks for indulging me on that for sure. Oh no, um, it's a very interesting topic that no one I don't, I don't think ever really discusses. Yeah. Well, yeah. I'd love to hear uh, your thoughts once you go back and listen. That's just right when you come into the, the bridge. Um, yeah, right as Matthew's doing the 
ooh, 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 ooh. And right after that, ooh, then you go on the oh, two to right. the to the ride. Um, no, yeah. like no fill, no nothing, just to the ride. Yeah. So anyway, right. go have a listen. Um, Most likely it was, uh, it was on the two is probably because I missed the one and then started on the two. And I didn't know where we were. That's possible that I just like got confused for a second then started one late because I was, oh, are we here? Okay, boom. That could have happened as well. So. Well, and someone was probably like, wow, that sounds really cool. Let's keep that. <laughs> Um, so, okay. So not a surf Bambi Kino. Yeah. You're also a dad. Uh, oh my God. I am. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I am. I have an 11 year old daughter. Her name is Vivian. Uh, yeah. I, 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 as a matter of fact, her middle name, I, she has a couple of middle names. One of them is H A Y L A Hala, which I named her after. Hala, Hey, hello. Oh, amazing. Uh, yeah. But the two weeks before she was born, that was on my stereo. I was like, Hey, Hala, Hey, Hey, wow, that's a nice name. And I looked it up. There's no one. Yeah. I couldn't have anyone with the name Hayla. So She's unique. Yeah. In the world that I'm aware of with it as H-A-Y-L-A as a name. Anyway, so I'm very, and the, the, and the when the day she was born, I had her like this and I I put on Hello, yep. Hello Goodbye. I'm like, first song she ever heard, Hello Goodbye. That's so I'm so training cool. her to be a Beatles fan. She's seen McCartney live. She's seen Ringo live. She's seen all the living Beatles she has witnessed. Yeah. She's on her way. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, and this is what we're talking about. Like the passing on of what you think is cool to your kids. Yep. You know, uh, the Beatles are, I think, oh, one of those things that are uh, notoriously, you know, cross-generation yes. cross cool. I, you know, years ago, I remember I had a, uh, my, niece, uh, my, my, my niece was very young and I gave her a Beatles cassette. At the time, that was still the that was still the currency, yeah. and she I think she still has it. Like you know, it meant a lot to her. You know, it had this this handmade like this is the stuff you got to listen to. You yeah. know, like twenty five perfect Beatles songs to light you up. Like no no chaff all. Be and by the way, I'm such a Beatles fan that I I don't want to talk about this, but I've uh, I'm also very critical, and so there's a lot of Beatles songs I don't like. So I'm putting it together a, a, what I call the Brown Album, which is all the Beatles worst. <laughs> The word the Beatles' worst songs. I know everyone which it's it's a it's a comic idea mostly, but I want to sort of put I love together that. what I consider to be like their worst material and then sort of like annotate it like why I think it's so bad. Yeah. Like in a comedy way. But anyway, there's certain Beatles songs that I could I'll happily turn off. This Not would too. be like a good like uh, coffee table book companion or something like that. Yeah, yeah. The brown album. I'm gonna be I've had the artwork picked out. Oh, it's hilarious. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. Well, if it ever comes to fruition, I'd love to, uh, yeah, support however I can. That's amazing. I mean, we do all have those songs, uh, all the, you know, those Beatles songs that kind of don't really speak to us. I'm curious, like, give me one, give me one that stands oh, out to you. Like, like, I had to say like Rocky Raccoon is one of those things I turn off immediately. I used to like that song because it's like, it's uncomplicated, Yeah. but to me, Rocky Raccoon is just like, I know it's so, it's cloying. Yeah. And uh, it's just McCartney. Like McCartney could really pick up anything and write it. Like, like yeah, Starbucks, Starbucks, that first sip feeling. You know, like he could yeah. write anything, and uh, it would sound like you'd want to sing it all day. And I think Rocky Raccoon is a good example of him sort of skittily scattling one out. Like, you know, listen, hello, goodbye. I don't want to include that one. Hello, goodbye was uh, supposedly him. Like, hey, I'll show you how to write a pop song in five yeah. minutes. You know, and look at the chord changes. They're all the basic changes. Nothing, nothing fancy. You say yes. I say no. Bam, bing, bang, yeah. boom. I, I, if he wrote that in longer than fifteen minutes, I'd be surprised. But yeah. you know, gift of a melody is like that. But yeah, I, they're not all. Not all things are created equal. So certain things, uh, 
uh, kind of like get get on my wick. You know, George Harrison has a lot of very dour. Yes. Piggies is a hard song to yeah, listen to. Yeah, I agree. It's, there's a lot of bitterness in a lot of his writing. Yeah. Anyway, I don't want to go on about like the the negativity around the Beatles, but I'm that kind of uh, I'm that kind of jerk. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, I with anything like you have to be honest about it, right? So if it doesn't well, yeah, speak to you, it doesn't speak critical, to you. You know, it's, you, yeah. you have to understand like what you like and why you like it and what you yeah. don't. So again, so passing this, uh, I can feel that was one of my charges as a dad yeah. was to pass what I consider to be my culture, and I come from a rock and roll culture. You know, yeah. I grew up, I was born in the 60s. I really grew up in the 70s. I started playing the drums around 73 and sort of obsessing on the radio and music from like 1972 to 1982 when I was, you know, in between the ages of 12 and 22, like, you know, between, oh, that's like 11 and 21. Like this, like kind of obsessing on music and what was on the radio, because that was really, I yeah. came from the radio world, you know, yeah. uh, television music didn't ha wasn't happening. So it was all, the radio was my conduit for everything. And, you know, television a little bit, watching bands. The only bands I saw were really on, you know, Don Kirshner's rock concert or yeah. uh, Saturday Night Live. Or I would, you yeah, know, late night shows and stuff. I would get the TV guide would come on Tuesdays and I would parse it to see like, what shows had what bands. So I was obsessed with it. So that was my life. I came from a sort of a rock band culture. I'm a rockist, I guess you would you would say. And so this is like, uh, uh, and in a way I feel it's uh, uh, like it's a world that's kind of, has faded into the background because pop music has changed so drastically. It seems like, you know, it's getting kind of quaint in a way that maybe the way I viewed jazz, you know, that, which was my father's music. Like yeah. jazz, oh, isn't that nice? Good Unaccessible oh, sort of. Yeah, I never really yeah. got down with jazz. I mean, I appreciate it. I know these are, you know, it's great music and so forth, but like it doesn't speak to me yeah. because I'm from a different generation. Um, so I can appreciate it, but I don't sit around listening to jazz. I, I'm just not that kind of person. Um, uh, so I don't beat myself up about, you know, because I, I should go to more museums too, I guess. Um, but uh, uh, so, so how yeah, do you. My culture, and I'm trying to sort of in my way, like, you know, but that goes across all things. Like, I'm a huge movie fan. So yeah. I'm to show my daughter if she's only 11 so there's only certain movies but you know trying to sort of bring her to movie culture and show her like these great she she can watch you know at this point you can watch any bad movie for an hour and a half i've seen her you know with her mom watching these horrible rom-coms yeah you know they can watch those all the time but i want to show her like you know i don't know midnight cowboy i want to show like yeah. you know I mean, he's too young for that but you know one day i'm like look at this great movie watch this great movie like there's so much great culture out there that you know, in the in the uh, in the in the maelstrom of modern media, you know, listen, I'm the same way. Like, I'm just going to watch some stand up comics on TikTok for 15 yep. minutes, or 15 minutes, 45 minutes. Yeah, I was just going to say, wow. I'm trying to adult myself, but sometimes, yeah, you get in, you go down the, the video rabbit hole and 40 yeah. minutes go by. I'm like, oh, what if I what was that about? So yeah, short attention span theater is very powerful with people, draws you in. Yep. But I, I like that where you relax, like even listening to vinyl records, I, I forget myself because I don't do it enough, but yes. putting a vinyl record and letting it, turning it up, well, not in the background, like focus on it, sit yep. there, do what you're going to do, but have it be the predominant sound in the room and listen through it, listen to all the textures happening. I put on a music from Big Pink last night. I was changing some drum heads yep. and I just put it on that and the textures of the drums and the the vocal performances like it just was so compelling every little warm you know records don't sound like that anymore right all this beautiful texture that's something you know so completely immersing yourself in a piece of art like getting inside it you know letting it be the predominant thing let it you know live in it for a while and then get out and then assess it 
you know, not, and everyone does things in a very perfunctory way. Like I'm watching a movie on my phone, you know, it's, yeah. it's, it's rude to the art. Right. <laughs> I totally agree. It's funny though, because it, it is just the way our society is too. You know, most of my listening, 90% of my listening is in the car, right? Which is actually a nice way to listen to music. In my opinion, it's oh, very, oh, you know, cars and cars and radios are the perfect, cause it's the right, you only have to move so much air. So yeah. the car is a perfect place to listen to. Absolutely. The best place to listen to music. No doubt. Yeah. But I'm the same as you. Like I have my record player here. Um, and Often it's when my, cause this is in my office or whatever. So um, it's not a place that I sort of like lounge around and listen to music casually. I kind of have to make an event out of it. Right. So I do the same thing as you. And um, you know, my kids were, they had a sleepover last weekend and it was the same thing. I, I was in my office, I put on some records and it was just like, Oh my God, I forgot how good this is. You know, I don't do this enough. So I totally get it. So how, how do you, you kind of talked about this, like kind of being charged with, um, you know, bringing that enjoyment and that experience to your daughter. And how do you do that around your house? You know, uh, it's a good question. I really feel like, like I probably don't do it enough. I just like, you know, I try to be a good, the only thing I think I can do, and I think that's, is try to be a good example myself. She knows that I spend a lot of time practicing. You know, I have a, I have a shed out behind the house with drum sets in it. You know, it's kind of quiet, but you hear me playing, you know, sort of yeah. up like, like there's a party happening on the, you know, in the next block. So she knows that I spent a lot of time obsessing. She, for example, if we drive around in the car, she's in the back or wherever, and I'm driving, I have a pair of drumsticks in the car. Awesome. And if I'm sitting at a light, I'm yeah. flipping sticks through my fingers constantly trying to learn how to do that. So that when I do, if I do, if I happen to do it on stage, they're not going to go shooting out of my hands. Right. I do it obsessively all the time. Constantly, 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 even while I'm driving, I'm like, I love that. I think I'm obsessed with my, my, what is my art. And I think hopefully she sees that and sees like, and for example, she now is, uh, she's watching these shows about these elaborate makeup competitions where people yep. are doing this very artistic makeup. And she's kind of turned on by that, which is great because her mom is really good at makeup and has taught her to sort of put her on her makeup, you know, uh, simple makeup for yep. herself. It's not you know, uh, for, you know, which she's really into. It's a creative it's, talent, it's right? It's, yeah. You know, being the application of makeup on the human face is an amazing art form. Like the mm -hmm. way it can shape shift, you know, we can present, it's an, it's an incredible art form and what it can do. And you see people who are super skilled at it. Uh, and, mo you know, most people, I guess most women who do, you know, they have a basic, you know, thing they do, keep it simple. You know, and again, it's a wide palette. You can do a million things. You can do very simple things. So she's learning. So she's kind of lit up by that. So she's watching these elaborate makeup things and starting to practice. But I, I, what I want to, what I'm about to sort of have this conversation with her, like she wants, she sees herself as doing this elaborate, um, like, uh, um, like a special effects kind yep, of makeup, yep. which is a, which is great. And that's a whole thing. But what I want to try to impart to her, and I'm going to try to, I'm, I want to present this the right way is that I really want her to focus on basic skills first. Yes, she can do that. But first you need to like perfect your skills as a simple beauty, you know, like, uh, you know, the basic stuff so that, because that's a skill set you can use anytime, anywhere, yep. every TV show, every, everyone needs a good makeup artist for an on-air personality, for the, for theater, for this, for that. Basic makeup is a skill set that she can build on and then move up. So I think she's starting too high on the ladder. I'd like to focus her in on, basic skills because that's something that i learned too late right. because i was self-taught 
as a musician, I taught myself completely. I didn't go to teachers. I didn't go to school. Interesting. Uh, I am completely self-taught. And uh, and because of that, I have a deficit in certain areas. Um, I came later to hand technique, grip technique, and learning to agility over the kit using uh, rudiments. Yep. I taught myself that, but way too late. If I had really focused on that when I was 15, 16, I'd be a completely different drummer now. You know, uh, uh, it would be very, it would be very different. So the stuff that I, sh uh, my ability to focus and practice was very, very low when I was young, but much greater now that I'm older because I really, I can really see it. I can really feel the difference. I, you, you yep. practice. You can't do something on Monday, and the next Monday you can totally do it. It's a, you know. So I'm trying to uh, try to get her back to start at basics and then grow from there. So yeah, things like that. Like I'm trying to uh, uh, take lessons from my life that I've learned as an yeah. artist. And, and try to sort of help guide her. So that's one thing I'm trying to do. Uh, I wish there was, you know, uh, I kind of feel, I wish there was more music in the house. We, I listen to a lot of music like you do in the car. So yeah. when I get in the car, I turn on satellite radio in the car and I have, uh, I I really listen to only, I listen to news, but when the people in the car, I I don't annoy them with that. I, I either listen to the Beatles channel yeah. or Tom Petty has a deep tracks channel where it's just like, it was like, Three or four hundred episodes of Tom Petty uh, hosting. You know, he did like a, a two hundred fifty-one hour long episode over seven years, and they, it's on a twenty-four hour cycle. And you can't, I, you couldn't find anything more entertaining than listen to Tom Petty personally DJ for you yeah. for hours and hours on end. It's one of my favorite things. It's the most awesome. comfort music, comfort food because it's all the greatest rock and roll, rhythm and blues, R and B, soul, blue. It's the greatest. Like that's my like macaroni and cheese. That's my mac and cheese yeah. radio yeah. station. So yeah, that's my thing. Like I just like to be immersed in music. It's like the the pleasure of rhythm of yeah. music kind of lights you up and you know boogie on down the road. Yeah, yeah. man, it's just how it makes it. you feel, yeah. right? It 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 just yeah. it does something that you can't even yeah. explain yeah. why it does that. Music in the air around you changes your whole vibe. You know, yeah. you put something on that's dark and ugly, and suddenly, like you know, everything looks dark and ugly. If I go into a store and there's a great song playing, I'm more likely to buy something. Don't believe that. You know, of course, everyone knows this. Yeah. You put the right. It's happened so many times. I'm like looking at a jack in a thrift store, and like, you know. All you need is love. I'm like, oh, I gotta get back. <laughs> oh, my God, you know, like, you know, people are, you know, that music means a lot to people. It, you know, uh, to me, like a, a vehicle where it's a lot of people and it's totally silent, like there's something wrong. You yeah, know, you know, totally. It's like there's like a tension in the air. Why is anyone talking? <laughs> it's funny you say that about the music playing in a store because I just saw a thing yesterday that was like. You know, when you go into a record store, the shittier the music that's playing over the speakers, the better the record store is. And yeah, I thought that absolutely. was just really funny because that is an experience at a record store. Quite often, you're like, "What the hell is this?" You yeah. know, like I've got a, yeah, I've crazy got a like I've psych had... stuff or whatever is always. Uh, Matthew has great stories about. Well, it's kind of like that movie, uh, uh, um, High Fidelity. High Fidelity, but... yep. Yeah, but Matthew did work in a record store in Williamsburg uh, and has similar stories. Like you know, whatever you would put on, that's what you would sell because people yep. would come in. The hell is that you know so you played it and even they didn't know it it was you know fascinating people would buy it so yeah yeah it's a powerful, powerful uh, thing for people so this is a rad dad show do you consider yourself a rad dad i yeah i i you know i think of myself as you know maybe it's my ego of being a musician my whole life or being a drummer you know we run on ego but yeah i see myself as like not normal in a good way like i'm not a normal guy 
You know, I'm a night, you know, there's day people and night people. Yep. I'm definitely a night person. You know, I feel, you know, and maybe it's just like me wanting to, you know, everyone goes like, oh, I'm so weird. You know, like I feel like I'm weird in a really great way yep. that is just off the beaten path. And I try to like, that's me, you know, and I own yep. it. And I think that's what being cool is. Like I've developed a, uh, a style for myself, a, you know, across a number of things based on my experiences, things I like, things I don't like. And I, that's, you know, what I bring to the world is my, you know, whatever, whatever little I have, yep. you know, so I try to own it completely and be okay with it. And yeah, I kind of revel in my otherness. I, you know, I don't know a lot of guys like me and a couple of people who are similar, you know, artists I know who are we're similar, like completely, like, psh, psh, you know, uh, so, in, a, in a straight world, you know, I'm, uh, uh, you know, in that sense, you know, this normies and then there's, you know, kind of funky artists. And I'm happy to be a funky artist if that's, if, if hopefully I fit that definition. Well, and what I loved, so when we, I reached out to you and asked you about it, you were, I think you said something along the lines of like, you know, if I'm not prepared to speak to being a rad dad, then no one is. Right. And I, I love I mean, that. Yeah, no, I, I own it. Like I'm not yeah. like a normal dad, like, you know, uh, you know, I don't know. I, I revel with, you know, I, I, yeah, I don't know. I don't, I'm, again, I, I feel like I'm, you know, oh, I'm so cool. But, you know, but I do try to like, I, you know, the concept of coolness, I remember as a teenager, really like, what does it mean to be cool? Like mm -hmm. what, how do I, like, I, I was at, in my twenties, late teens and twenties, I was obsessed with being cool because I was a, a, a musician, B, I was a teenager trying to get, trying to meet girls. And I was starting to hang out in clubs yep. in New York city. So I'm like, I have to really up my cool game. I was just like a nerdy kid with curly hair from Queens. I had no, I had, I hadn't developed a sense of personal style. So what I had to sort of do was take a crash course in personal style, you know, being around funky people. I'm like, look at this guy, look at her, look at, look what that guy's doing. Look at the, look at how uh, free they are with how they shape themselves. They wear this, they put on that, like they, it's unbelievable. So I, to hang out with those people, I, I did some basic stuff. Like I joined this garage band and of course everyone in there was for like black turtleneck sweater, yep. you know, uh, black leather gloves. And we all dyed our hair black. So that's one of the easiest things. Dye your hair black. It's there you of, go. It says, you know, you're kind of goth, you're kind of yep. tough. You're willing to sort of reshape yourself. You may think you know who I am, but you don't know who I am. Yeah. You know, it communicates a lot of things. How does it fit into your, your parenting then? So you're a rad dad. And we talked before about one of the things that is important to us with, you know, our organization is empowerment of dads. And so I really liked that you're, you were just like, yes, there was no question. Yes, I'm a rad dad. So how does that fit in, in your parenting then that, that, you know, Maybe it's maybe it's ego, but may, I think more of what you're talking about is um, your personal, uh, like being in touch with who you are, right? And so, how does that fit in? That's a good question. Um, like, is that something you talk with I mean, your you talk with your daughter about? Is that something that you I mean, are conscious I, I, of I, with I, your I, daughter? I mean, my daughter, my daughter knows me in that I'm, I I try not to. Well, I basically, I, I try not to over communicate. And when I talk to her about certain things, I think she knows that I, like, if I talk to her about some stuff, like we were talking about earlier, where I want her to focus on this rather than that, I sit her down and she knows that I'm not like, I'm not the kind of guy, I'm like, I'm not a disciplinarian dad. I'm like, we, her personality and my personality are really quite similar. So I think she understands, I feel like there's an understanding between us when I 
talk to her directly and I never speak to her. You know, I talk to her like an adult, always have. Right. She really listens to me and she understands that what I'm trying to do is, you know, get her to sort of some wisdom that I'm trying to sort of pass on and, you know, I know trying to guide her in a really good way, not in a way that's like annoying because, you know, she's getting, she's not, she hasn't had this full teenager thing where she's annoyed by me yet. I hope she never really hits that. I don't think she will. We have a good relationship. So I'm, I don't know, how do I put it into practice? I know I'm just trying to be myself and I'd speak with her directly. I, one thing I just wanted to sort of, I, I keep thinking about this and I hope we'll get to it, but there was something I wanted to say about my dadness. Yeah, go ahead. That's my, that, that is it really, I, I think I just want to communicate. And I don't quite know what it means. I don't know where I'm going, but when, um, when my wife, when we got to the point in our relationship where she, uh, where she's like, I want to, we have to, um, I want to get pregnant and have a kid. I really chafed at that. I really mm -hmm. didn't want to do that. I fought it really hard yep. because I, I felt I was, I was scared um, because I'm a person because of the name, like I said, because I'm who I am. I'm also, I don't answer to anybody, <laughs> you right. know, never had a proper job. I never had a boss. You know, I didn't, my parents were not, you know, I got along, you know, it was not like that kind of relationship. I didn't, you know, uh, I, having a kid would mean being less selfish yeah. <laughs> and, and I, that, and I, and I, what I happened was I started just to have this, like a, it was like in a movie where you, there's like a, a montage. And I saw this little montage would play in my head of, all these dad things that I would have to do. Yeah. I don't want to be in a room full of 19 screaming children. Yeah. All these negative things. Like, I'm gonna have to do this that I don't want to do. I'm gonna have to do I'm gonna have to get up early in the oh, that's a big one. I'm gonna have to get up yes. early in the morning. I'm one of those people I go to bed my whole life. I go to bed at four in the afternoon, four at night, and I wake up at, I don't know, eleven, noon, two, yep. if I can get away with it. Like that was my whole life. I never had to, you know. Well, that's a musician's life too, right? Like you Yeah, but I'm not proud of it, but I'm saying that was my schedule. And you know, yep. no one gave me a hard time about it. Like that's what I wanted to do. That's what I did. And yep. my life. Now it's now it's a bummer. If I wake up too late in the day, I'm my day is shot because I'm, I'm I, it's depressing. But that's my basic rhythm. Like I yep. like to late i like to get up late um and i've been that way since i was a teenager so this is so i was worried about all these various things and i fought it and i fought it and it was yeah. tough and i didn't want to do it and finally uh, of course it happened and now in retrospect of course it's like i wouldn't trade it for anything it was like the greatest thing that because it puts your it puts life in a whole new wonderful perspective and like we're talking about all the things that you love you get to re-experience because now you get to show it to somebody like, hey, look at this great thing that I discovered 29 years ago. Yeah. And they're like, wow, Abbott and Costello, or, you yeah. know, well, wow, this, that, or the other thing, you know, like, you know, you get to sort of bring them gifts from, you know, things that you discovered, treasures in the world and bring it to them. And, you know, maybe they'll dig it, maybe they won't. But, you know, someone to, that's your gig, you know, you have to sort of give them sort of like some context to the world, hopefully. I don't know, maybe that's part of my job. But. Well, I'm glad you brought it. I'm glad you brought that up because that is something that comes up all the time. We we actually like to talk about that that um, fear that some people have, um, and I I actually think um, the two things are often very connected. And and your experience is not necessarily super unique in that way. In that our whole life 
we're kind of brought up to, it's like about me as a kid, it's, you know, you know, uh, let's get you to your sports and, you know, do good in school. And you're going to be an adult. What are you going to do once you're an adult and go get a job? And it's the world is your oyster and all this stuff. And I think it's totally natural and super common for mm. people, especially probably, you know, it's probably compounded by the fact that you're a musician, you've been on tour. It's very like, it's almost like a hyper, um, yeah, no. selfish. And, and I don't mean that in a negative way, selfish environment. I don't think selfish is a bad word. We have to take care of ourselves and nurture ourselves. Right. Yeah. And it's natural to fear change. Oh, absolutely. So what, what was that transition like for you? Like, so you're, you're looking oh, back now I, and I feel the same way, you know, I would never turn it around, but I was scared too. And I had a tough time, especially with my second daughter, um, mm -hmm. Like, did you have a tough time or was it kind of like, well, the thing, like we made it, we cut a deal Okay. Uh, and, the deal, and the deal we cut, I cut a deal with my wife because I kind of could see what was going to happen. And so I said, listen, you know, I know myself pretty well. And, and I said to her, basically what I told you, like, I kind of like fear responsibility to some degree, but I said, listen, you know, how, you know, you're a great person. Like, how could you not be a great parent? How could the two of us together not be a great team to raise a kid like we'd be uh, how that's of course so it made that started to make sense to me like because you know it's parenting is not just you it's like you're working in tandem yes. like a, you know out of the chris rock like it, it's a business you know the child you know a relationship is a business and the business of the business is you raise a child together that's your that's your job you're the ceo yeah. of the business so um once i got past that hurdle of accepting it oh so here's the deal i said listen i'm only x responsible you know, I'm not going to suddenly like not be a musician anymore. Right. That's so what we'll do. I'm okay with having one kid. So we will have this one and then I'm going to, I took care of it. So we're not having any more is what I'm saying. There's no possible way. You're welcome. That uh, we're going to, and, and she didn't want to, like I said, she didn't want to be the one responsible for that part of it. She didn't want to be on, you know, uh, birth control for the yep. rest of her life. I said, okay, I'll do it. I don't want to, like one kid's enough for me. I don't think I'm going to want another one later down the line. I'm 60 years old now. I'm gonna, am I going to get divorced and remarried and try to have another kid 10 years from now? God damn it. I hope not. So, um, uh, so yeah, so I like, okay, so that was the deal we made. And yep. I felt good about that. Like I know, like that's it finite. We have the one and, and I can focus on that and we won't get into this. Like, cause I know it would happen like definitely two years later after she, you know, she got to a certain point. I know we both were like, hmm, mm -hmm. wouldn't it be fun if she had, you know, so I, uh, so I, I but I, I, I made sure that didn't, I took care of that before it happened. Yes. But yeah, the deal we made. So I, so I knew, so I set down parameters that I was comfortable with for myself. And I think I can, that I can handle. I, you know, I kept seeing myself, honestly, Brett, I kept seeing myself as, uh, you know, I spent a lot of time in airports. And I kept seeing like, you know, in my head, I kept seeing like a guy and his wife and they're both like harried. They're like, <laughs> and they both have like, they have like three kids and they're yeah. one climbing on him and one's on the, one's on the pull thing. Yeah. And the backpack's around, falling open and the milk's on the ground. The <laughs> things on the posts and running around. I'm like, I am not going to be that guy. Yep. You know, he's, you know, he's in a hike, he's wearing a backpack and he's wearing a hiking pants and uh, he's wearing comfortable <laughs> shoes. I'm like, uh, no, 
I am that's I'm never that is never going to be me. So I made sure I was not that guy. So that would be outside my my coolness guidelines. Yeah. <laughs> so but I, I like that, though, because I think it speaks to and you said this, like it speaks to that importance of communication and what are my needs and what do I want? And and it is a, a partnership, whether you know, whether you're doing it with a partner you're with or not, because other people that their situation is different um, sure. or or maybe it's family members or whatever, like that communication is so important because. I think it can, um, the last thing you want is like your, you know, the fact that you have kids to get in the way of anybody's happiness or whatever. And it's, it's hard. Yeah. It's yeah. so hard. And it also, you know, I think it also, when I think about it, it, you know, I think also there's a lot of dynamics that come from people's previous, like what kind of family you grew up in. If you grew up in a family yeah. with a lot of children, you're probably apt to yourself have more children. I grew up in a family where it was really basically, I have an older sister, but she was like much older. She's like 10 years older. Yeah. So I didn't really see her as a sibling as much as I saw her as another adult. Yeah. So I kind of saw, see myself really as an only child. Technically, I was raised pretty much by myself. Also, same with my wife. She was really pretty much an only child. So I think if you come from a small family, you're probably more apt to also be okay with only having one kid. Whereas if you came from a large family, you know, I think you're kind of wired to be in this sort of brood of, you know, many. I don't know. Like, you know, we're programmed by by our by how we grew up you know we our parents are totally. become a primary example of how to behave and either we do that or don't do it or you know whatever like you know you would take that and run with it you yeah know? Good, exactly good, bad, and otherwise you know so you i mean you were worried about how it would change you but i'm sure it did change you so but of course all in good ways yeah so tell me about that well, I mean, it, it just, you be, like I said, you become less, you become more selfless. You get out of yourself. My tendency toward uh, solipsism uh, was broken by the fact that I need to more actively think about someone beside myself. Uh, and this is, uh, you know, this is a condition for the world. This is for something for everyone needs to understand. Get out of yourself and realize there's other people around you that, you know, maybe could use your help, <laughs> you know. But I, I, the idea that, you know, suddenly there was someone to take care of that was your charge and a human being you know, it changes your whole outlook on the world. So, um, yeah, so this was quintessential. It was really important for me, for, for my development as an individual, you see the world in a much broader way and you see time in a different way. You see your own time, yep. you know, how much time you have, how you use that time. It puts everything in a, in a different perspective. So these are they're all really powerful things that really made my life much, much better. And, you know, also the, and listen, I'm also lucky that my wife and uh, it's two women. I love, you know, I lived with women my whole life. I think yeah. I would have had a time with a boy. I don't know. You know, that's another thing. Interesting. I, I imagine sometimes I, I was so happy when I found out I was having a girl because yep. I grew up with women, my mom, my sister, my not, I mean, I was close to my dad, but he wasn't in the house. Uh, um, so I always grew up with women. So I, I loved having this female energy in the house. It's really nice. You know, I'm totally the same way. And actually I was petrified of having a boy. I have two girls. Um, and, and I'm not ashamed to say like, I, and I think why I'm, I was worried about it was I was never kind of like a, I don't know, like average kind of guy, a guy's guy. I've never been that kind of guy. And I was worried, Oh my God, if I have to like teach my kid how to like play baseball, you know, all these things that they're stereotypical and I'm not trying to like gender things up, but, um, but they were things I was legitimately concerned about. And sure. I love being in a house with girls. Like I, I, I feel like it's the right place to be for me, for sure. Um, yeah. 
and like I said, I'm not ashamed about that. I don't think it's something to be ashamed of, but I, I was scared about having a, a boy. And actually I had the same conversation with my wife. You know, I was like, you know, my number for kids I'd like to have it's zero to one. <laughs> you know, I was like, I'm, I'm not sure I even really want to have kids. And, and, and we did. And then anyway, we had a second, right. And it wouldn't change it for the world. But I think that played into it a little bit. I was terrified about being a dad to a boy. So I was worried I wouldn't know how to do it. Interesting. You know, I had similar fears and I don't remember. I do remember like going, I guess I can't remember at some point we had an ultrasound or something yeah. and they determined the sex of the child and I was elated. Um, but again, I sort of think like about that moment sometimes, like what would have happened, like had it gone the other way, yeah. I just would have to roll with it. Well, yeah, of course. What? Right. That would have been great too. Like, you know, of course I, you know, it would have been fantastic, but that was really something for me. Like I, I had the same sort of fears. Like I'm not, my dad, for example, was a very athletic guy, tennis player. I was vaguely athletic. I like to run, but I was never, you know, that I'm not competitive. I could be athletic, but I don't have this sort of like kill instinct to like win, 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 yeah. maybe on certain levels, but not really in a, like in a sporting team. I'm a team player in a band where I get to be creative in a team, yes. but in a sort of a sports way. I did play baseball when I was uh, when I was young, but I was always the worst guy on the team. Me too. Oh, my heart. Yeah. Not I rode the bench at the end, and then I was finally like, okay, I'm done. <laughs> I wanted to hang out with my friends, but like yeah. I was not good at what they were good at. Yeah. Um, and I was so happy when I found being a drummer when I was 10, I discovered being a drummer and suddenly like, Oh, there's the thing I can do that none of my other male friends can do. I win. Like I had this, it yeah. had identified me. So it was so strong to me when I, when I like, Oh, I'm a drummer. You know, by the time I was 11 or years old, I was like, no, oh, I'm a drummer. You know, like, you yeah. know, I, I saw myself as that. I actively imagined it, you know, you found that identity. Right. And that's what we're all looking for as kids too. Is I'm so lucky. Some people never find that thing. I found right. it really early on so lucky did did kids entering the picture so i'm i'm kind of looking back on on what not a surf was doing around 11 years ago so this would have been kind of stars are indifferent to astronomy time um did it change the dynamic of the band what happened from the band perspective did it change approaches to touring did it how did it the, you know, did the, it change anything or maybe it didn't at all um no the the band had to change for many other reasons and maybe that was one of a number of things but what was happening at that time Throughout that period, I, I don't remember exactly, but in in the in the long haul, when we began the band in the mid '90s, up until the hmm, let's say the into the early 2000s, 2002, three, um, that eight year stretch, we all lived in Brooklyn together. Yeah, and so uh, Dan, uh, we either had a rehearsal studio in Brooklyn, or for a while we we used Daniel's apartment which kind of was near was near us. And at one point I moved into that apartment. So we all, it was like the monkeys or the Beatles where they're all in the same, you know, same long apartment. Yeah, it helped, like yeah. He lived a few blocks, I lived a few blocks and we would all convene and rehearse there. I don't remember, it might've been for that record, but what was happening generally at that point was that at that, then we started to sort of shift apart. Matthew, because of his uh, situation with his family ended up moving to England. Yep. Daniel, because he was comfortable doing that, moved to Spain, his home country. So at, by the end of the 2000s, doing anything as a band became a logistical effort. Yep. You know, for rehearse, we had to sort of convene somewhere on some continent to, you know, have two weeks. Well, we, uh, yeah, so to, 
work to put things together. So over time, it became the band changed because we all sort of had to, you know, we weren't so uh, physically close. Yeah. So that was the, the biggest change that happened. And yes, Matthew, Matthew was the first one of the three of us to have a child that would have been in the mid 2000s. He had his he had his first uh, he had his first son. Um, which was a very dramatic thing. I don't want to get into his personal life, but yes. it, it was a very dramatic moment in his life. But uh, um, but and but, but he's a beautiful son, and now he's like he's like an, is he in high school now or something? His son is like an ultra, super, super egghead, super smart. Oh my god, so awesome. great! His parent, you know, his mom is uh, was an academic as well, and, and Matthew comes from a family of academics, so yes. you know he has naturally super highly intelligent children, uh, and. Uh, uh, so yeah, he's got he's got two great uh, great kids, a son now, uh, a by, yeah. uh, through his, his first wife, uh, two kids, one wife, and um, uh, yeah. So that was a big sea change for him, and we kind of you know sort of we helped him through that. He was like an emotionally difficult period for a while. Uh, I don't want to again. I, I I can't I can't talk about Matthew's personal life, but uh, so you know we watched that, and then I would, um I have to say like I was in a I got married around that same time around 2002 three i got married and then quickly it came apart very quickly. we had been in a long relationship um uh but the marriage came apart rather quickly my fault and um uh i was kind of acting out but i think i got married for the wrong reason anyway like i i i feel like i i i feel like i kind of destroyed the marriage because i in some part of me was like not happy with being i'd made the right. wrong and, and I think this was my horrible way of ending it. Uh, I, I regret how I did that. Um, terrible. Live and learn. Uh, and and Renee, we're still very good friends. I'm happy to say that she doesn't hate me. Okay. Um, uh, but um, uh, so, yeah, it was, a, it was a seizure for all of us. We're sort of still like learning how to be adults and you know, adult relationships and how do you maintain them? And and so Matthew was the first one. And then I, I got remarried around to uh, well, I started a new relationship around 2000 and I guess around 2006 or so. And then we were married around 2009, had Vivian in 2011. So it was a, then sort of like, I feel my life kind of kicked into gear. The relationship was strong. We had the kid, you know, we sort of like, I settled into being an adult. Like I was like now yeah. a, 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 a husband and now a father, like it sort of planted me in the ground and we had a home together. So I got a really sense of like, ah, now I have this very stable thing. I'm not like playing at it, like pretending to be, I am like, you know, we have this you know, the, like I said, like a business partnership, she and I are going to do this thing together. So it's a very powerful uh, uh, alliance, you know, we're, I think we're doing a pretty good job. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, I I, I like so, hearing that. I mean, li life is full of ups and downs like that, too. Right. And it's interesting yeah. how. Yeah, yeah not, you know, you know, without going through perfectly. Yeah, yeah. Some, sometimes without going through that, the bad, like you don't get to the good and, and um so it's important to when i think about it you know at first marriage i was in uh we never really talked about kids she, she and i never did and you know that would have complicated things terribly uh, you know luckily we never uh you know had had children i think that would have really been that would have been a dread i mean not having children is not a dreadful mistake like i think that would have complicated things you know to have to leave a marriage when there's also children that's really painful yes. my dad you know um, i remember very clearly when my parents got divorced when i was around uh, split up or separated when I was around nine or so. And I remember like my dad having this conversation with me about, you know, him moving out of the house and not being there. And you know, he desperately, you know, he broke into tears and wanted me to know that of course that it had nothing to do with me. I'm like, yeah, dad, I understand. Like they were not getting along. I knew it, yeah. you know, like, 
so, you know, it was better for all of us that, you know, that he, that he was not there, you know, like the tension in the house was, was palpable. No one was happy. So he was happier. It brought down, you know, the, it was nice. Like that really, I think if anything improved my relationship with my own father, it was yeah. the divorce. Our, you know, we had to, like, he was legally you know, entreated to have to sort of take care of me to some degree. So every two weeks, he'd come pick me up on Friday night. We'd spend the weekend together. And that cemented our relationship. We'd go see Woody Allen movies and yeah. we'd, you know, we'd have a good time. We'd go here, there, go to the music store, go to F.E.O. Schwartz. You know, we had a great time, father and son. We got along great. You know, I probably was no fun when I was 11, 12 years old. I was probably a dour, you know, kid. Again, listen, I just wanted to listen to the radio. That's yeah. what we did. Drove in the car and I turned the radio on and that's wins the music. That's all I wanted to do anyway. Isn't it amazing those very simple things? Those are such powerful memories though for oh, you, I'm right? Happy. Yeah. You know, like he he wasn't, you know, for you know, he was happy with me being me and like listened to what I would listen to. So, you know, I was we had, we still have a very good relationship with my father. Yeah, I've seen you post a little bit about your dad on social media. So that's always cool to see. Uh, I should call him. He's uh he's he's 90. Now is he 90 now? 91? 32. No, he's wow. 91 years old now. Lord God, man. I think, oh, that old, that old coot. I got to give him a call. <laughs> Does he live close to you? No, unfortunately he lives. I'd, I'd love him. We, we've offered to move him here. He lives in Tucson, Arizona. Okay. Uh, and I live in, in Sarasota, Florida. So that's a bit of a hike. And he, uh, uh, he, he's at the point in his life and I don't blame him. Like he's not going to get on an airplane for any sure. reason. And we've said, Hey dad, you know what we will do? We will buy you a house. Yeah. And we, I will drive there, pick you up and drive you here. So maybe he'll go for that one day. It was not too much time left for him to make that decision, but we would happily do. I wish he lived closer because right. he, uh, you know, he's one of those, he's one of those grandfathers who dotes on like, you know, Vivian, like, he, like, that's like a life force. I feel like he'd live another four or five years if he was around Vivian. <laughs> you it's know? amazing to see he's that. Right. No, it's like a powerful thing, you know, children, the love of, you know, grandchildren, and especially this sort of, I can't even imagine, like, you know, that's another thing I haven't really put my head around. Like, now I understand the relationship between a dad and a child, to some degree. Now, like, I'm trying now, I haven't really put my head around dad, child, like my daughter having a child, like, well, I don't, you know, I, I might know. see, I'm, you know, old enough, like I said, I waited a long time. I didn't have my first child, Vivian, until I was 40 eight yeah i waited a really long time like i said i waited as long as i could i'm an old dad so you know i may i may never see her get married i you know i may never happen but uh well we'll see how, how life plays out you you're know. not an old dad you're a rad dad i'm a rad dad yeah I'm, I'm getting younger every day uh, you know i i want to be conscious of your time too i i want to like give us some time too to talk a little bit about what's happening with not a surf what's happening with you if you have other projects and things that are going oh. on i know and you mentioned at the beginning you guys have done some recording. I've been kind of following that you know, very closely online. So tell me a little bit about what's happening with, with uh, the band. You're you're kind of coming off. Um, it's Let Go's 20th anniversary. I actually have it's back here, but I don't know if anybody can see it. But I got I got the turquoise vinyl. Um, you know, such an important record. So that's a, a big thing happening right now. Um, yeah. You're coming off Never Not Together, which is a few years old now, which is actually kind of surprising. The you know the last couple of years of. Yeah. kind of blown by what's what's happening next well yeah um, um we were really you know, we released uh that last one never not together minutes before the pandemic pandemic yes. happened it is tragic 
really for us because it's a really beautiful record. We're incredibly Amazing. proud of it. And we got cut off at the legs because we were only able to tour for a month or two. We did some American shows. We started doing European shows and that's when the pandemic broke. And then we had to stop, which really put the, really put the brakes on uh, uh, the cycle, which we would have been able to promote that record longer and harder. It's such a good record. And we were so desperately proud of it. Um, and because of the pandemic, of course, we really couldn't, we, you know, we didn't work, we didn't have anything to do. We didn't work. We couldn't go play shows. Right. Um, and even, you know, if Matthew, you know, uh, Matt, if Matthew wrote, he would write on his own. So uh, it took us a year and a half to even start to come back together and play, start to play shows again. We try to pick up where we left off to some degree. And then we started writing again. So after over the past two years in 2021 and 22, we spent some time uh, playing some shows here and there uh, when we could and then writing. So uh, over those, you know, we spent weeks here, weeks there. We would go to Daniel. Daniel, like I said, has a yeah. house out in Spain. So we would go to his house. We would spend two weeks there writing, making demos. And so we worked up enough material. And then in January, just a few, two months ago, we went back to the studio again in Wales where we made Never Not Together, a beautiful yep. studio called Rockfield. And uh, we recorded, uh, I think it's, I don't know how many, it's like 10, no, not very many, 10 songs. Um, and uh, and now, so those have been, uh, those have been tracked, but we're in the sort of like, Matt, I think Matthew's probably finishing final lyrics. Uh, we have to, you know, it hasn't started to get mixed yet. I think we're doing final elements. Uh, I don't know if Daniel has, he may have a baseline or two that he, he didn't finish. I'm not quite sure. He usually waits to, he takes him a while to figure out his parts. And then, you know, so we're like, all the final stuff is going on now and we'll probably farm it out. Well, we have, a, you know, we used to farm out things to keyboard players, but now we have a keyboard player in the band. Yeah. Our Louis is our keyboard player. So we don't have to really farm anything out. Uh, so it's all in-house. So yeah, it's pretty much done. And now it goes in the mixing process. And then we have to figure out like when we're going to release it. It'll either, if we can't get it out by the fall, um, we'd have to wait through the way you can't release after certain, you can't release in the winter around Christmas, yeah. you can't put a record out. So either we put out in the fall of this year, which potentially could happen or early next year. Um, and this year we're doing, you know, there, uh, there are dates happening. There's certain festival dates in Europe that are happening you know, no, no tours per se, but individual dates where we have an offer to a festival here, a festival there. So there are some not a surf shows. In, we're playing. Are you ready for this? Do you ever hear of Reunion Island? Reunion Island is some little island off the no. coast of Madagascar. It's way out there. As a matter of fact, I was watching Crazy. something about there was a famous the plane that went down in the in the yes. China Sea that they didn't find. Yeah. A piece of the fuselage washed up on Reunion Island. Oh, it's out boy. Of, Nowhere's no anyway, but they evidently have a fest. Some guys, promoters have a have a music festival there, yeah. which is supposed to be amazing. It's beautiful tropical island, and we're playing there in a few months. So there's a couple of like wow. wacky. Like, in, so we have a Spanish promoter. He's got some. So we have a couple, a handful of shows coming up. So not a surf is going to play some shows, and at some point we'll release that record. We don't have a title for it yet, um, and uh, hopefully, I, I guess it's going to be pretty good. I, again, I can't. I don't know. Uh, I'm only the drummer. Um, but I, but I think it'll be I think it'll be great. I mean we you know we fuss over the details of our records uh, to to uh, so we don't we don't uh, we don't release anything we don't think is great ourselves. You haven't put out a bad record, so I, I'm uh, I'm pretty confident I'm gonna like whatever you guys put out. But well, I, I, I'm with you on that one. I'm gonna I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna yeah. I, You've yeah, got the the guarantee. I'm, I'm, a, it's funny because I can, I'm really ambivalent because I I I find like even after. 
knowing these songs and we wrote them together and we recorded them together and I've listened to some of the playbacks, I still don't, I can't really, I don't really have a sense yet of what the record sounds like because it's unmixed. And right now it's kind of think this too loud and that the voices, you know, the drums are way in the back. I'm like, where's yeah. the drums? I did all this beautiful drums. Where are they? Like, you know, everything has to get sort of like ironed out. So the picture becomes very clear. So even to me, it's kind of a fuzzy picture. Like I know it's the song and this catchy part, but not till it's all kind of laid out and, you know, graphically put out in the mixing process. Does it really start to take a, a, a solid shape? So yeah, I, I'm wait. I'm excited for that process where it, it, it will flower uh, in in the next months, weeks. And then my other thing is that I, I have a, a Beatles uh, early Beatles cover band called Bambi Kingdom, and we do all the stuff that the Beatles did uh, in Hamburg. They were a cover band for from 1960 to 1962 they were basically a cover band and um, they played famously hours and hours a night in Hamburg, five, six nights a week, six, seven hours a night. You know, they put in their fame, their 10,000 hours rule. They, yep. they put all those hours uh, over two years in Hamburg before they, just before they got Ringo. A lot of, they still say, uh, it was Mark Lewison says that uh, calculates that Pete Best technically played more on stage hilarious. With the Beatles in those two year and a half than Ringo ever did with the Beatles on stage because the Beatles once Ringo joined the band and they became a hit band the Beatles never played more than 25 minutes to a half an hour yeah and, well and halfway through yeah. their their sort of tenure as a band they stopped playing live too that's right so there was only a two or three year period where he was playing live with them and they never played they played a half hour show that was it they so interesting out the days of playing hours and hours were over by by the by the end of 62 and they were a pop group and they they did it they came on they did a half hour set they ran out you know they played the the single and a bunch of other songs off the record and the sing and, and yeah look at their set list there were like 10 12 songs yeah you know? crazy uh, so uh so it's an interesting thing so the, so playing this uh this all this music it's about our set list we have about 90 to 100 songs there were all these, you know, like like the Tom Petty I thing, like it's all blues, R and B, vocal group stuff, all that stuff that they, yeah. you know, a lot of it appeared on their records. They so cut their teeth on it, sort of. And the other guys in the band are my friend Mark Razzo, who I played with in a couple of bands, Champagne, and uh, uh, we have a band. Oh, what was our other band? There was a band called Champagne. There was a band called uh, uh, um, Oh Maplewood, a really great band. My friend Eric plays bass and sings. He plays with Cat Power. Yeah, very talented, uh, super talented. Eric Paparozzi, incredibly talented guy, great McCartney esque kind of singer. And the other guitarist is a guy named Doug Gillard, who you may recognize from Guided he was by in the Band. Band. Yeah, yeah, and he's he was our, in Not a uh, Surf for a time. He was. He was. Uh, we were happy to have him as a member at that time. He, uh, GBV made him a better offer, so he uh, <laughs> and understandably. No, they 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 work really hard. They make a lot of money. It's a good gig for him, and he's you know he's right at home in that environment. And it was great to have him. And he's still a, and you know maybe we'll have him do a guitar solo or something on the record. He's 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 what a great player. And to have him in Bambi Kino as our hotshot guitar player, yeah, uh, it's just a, it's just magic. Like everyone's so on in fuego. It's it's great. So we have a show. We have we were about again. We were about to play a show at the the when the pandemic happened right at the beginning of April. At the end of March, beginning of April, there was going to be some anniversary shows in Hamburg. Uh, that was 2020, 21. Yeah, that was 61. I think that was, yeah, it was like the 60th anniversary, I think, maybe of their, of something like the 20, I can't remember what it was. It was like an anniversary year. Yeah. But it didn't happen. Crazy. So now they're, I think they're having the, another festival uh, in a few months in Hamburg. 
um you know there's some really big famous beatles cover band headlining uh, okay what they're called but so they they wanted a bunch of different acts and they contacted us and we just agreed to it a few days it hasn't been officially announced just yet cool but we agreed to it a few days ago we met Oregon, and we're all eric's in la mark and doug are in new york i'm here in florida again it's all organizing so uh we've agreed to do that so we're doing two nights in hamburg one at a club called the kaiser keller which is a, yes again a club the that notorious the, kaiser keller on is the, it still in the uh, same same location? Same location, exactly. It's on what's called the uh, the uh, Grosse Freiheit, the Big Freedom. Yeah. Um, it's on a strip of very. It used to be a pretty notoriously seedy. There's still some kind of seedy kind of establishments. It used to be really, really Forty Second Street kind of strippery, but even more so, like you know, transvestite bar. It was pretty. Yeah. You know, it was pretty wild. It was a wild scene. So. Uh, but it's a little more it's it's not quite as listen there still is that street uh maybe a quarter mile away from there called the herbertstrasse which is a strip of prostitutes in windows which yeah. is blocked off you know that still exists there um so crazy. that old crazy hamburg is still like little bits of it still there there's still that whole vibe so uh, the kaiser keller is still the original establishment uh it's still there you go down and it's a keller it's a cellar you go yeah. down yeah uh Rathskeller. uh and then up the street there was called, the first place they played was called the indra the indra uh, yep still in the original location that was the place we uh, baby Kano first played and so we're playing a couple of hours an hour and a half at the one place and then the next night an hour and a half or two hours at the other place uh and we are so and we're trying to figure out if maybe we can do a show or something in new york or new jersey uh, beforehand to kind of warm up to do that. Yeah. Uh, so we're trying to do that. So I'm very, that to me is like, whew, I'm so excited to do that. You can't even, I can't even begin to put words to it. It's so much fun to play that music. You just kind of, because it's effortless, you know, you, they all, you know, you start, like, we'll do, you know, go and listen to the Star Club recordings. It's all yeah. that stuff, you know, these little three minute rock and roll songs and everyone does harmonies and it's and everyone starts twisting around and yeah. you know the audience gets off on it we get off when the band is really into it and we do this thing like we try to do it in a sort of in a way whereby like we don't put on costumes or accents we wear black yeah. um but uh what we do is we we do it they, the, the way it would have been then we try to do uh, typically speaking what we normally do is play four and five hours at a time we play an hour long set and a short break and an hour long set and a short break and an hour. We never, we rarely play less than three hours across oh four or five hours. That's how we typically do it. So it's very hard for us to get shows. We don't open for people. Right. You need a whole night, right? That you're there for the whole yeah, night. Typically speaking, what we try to do is have an experience where you can come watch the band for an hour, go have a drink and a smoke a cigarette, come back, watch us for another, or don't, you know, or, you know, you can come in late and watch the second set. Yeah. The idea of a band playing, one band playing all night long. The other thing is that we, what we do is we don't do what modern bands do. We only put the vocals in the PA. It's the guitar amps, maybe one or two microphones on the drums and, and a bass drum mic. And it's a very raw sound in a room, the way a band would have sounded in 1960. Yeah. You know, not everything is mic'd up a drum. If they put, they try to put microphones on my drums. Yep. I'm like, no, 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 no. You get two microphones on the drums. Yeah. Google mics. That's all you get. And it's the guitars and the vocals in the room. That's what bands sounded like then. And that's what we try to sound like that raw open sound. Awesome. You, you know, you don't get an experience like that. So we're trying to be like an experience of what it would have been like to see a really hot twist band, a beat band in 1960 61 
you know, and and draw that kind of youthful energy. It draws this teenage energy out of it when you play it because you can really lean into them. They're all very simple, you know, three, four chord songs. You know, there and you can't imagine a better time. It's so great. Oh my God! What you're, what I'm hearing is, I yeah. need to book a trip to Hamburg. Yeah, I think you know. That's what I need to do. We yeah. play very rarely. We play very. We unfortunately oh, listen. I've said this. I would, man. I would happily do that every night for hours and hours. You, it, it's really, it's very strenuous. Uh, even as a professional musician, to play yeah. full on for three, four hours a night. You know, I'm 60 years old now. Like. That is a marathon, man. Yeah. Yeah. I, I have some, uh, some friends who kind of play in cover bands that, you know, play pretty regularly and, you know, you do two nights on a weekend and it's like, Oh, like that's yeah. a lot of work. Your voice is hurting after your, your muscles yeah, are sore. Super, super three, four hours, man. Yeah. yeah. But it's, you can't imagine, Oh my God, what a good time. What a crazy. Good time. Well, really look at all that stuff. That's so, so awesome. A lot of good stuff is happening for me. Yeah, I'm very happy about all of it. And I have a studio here in my backyard and people, I have friends who, uh, I mean, it was just a rehearsal room, but I, now I, I recorded it as well. So, you know, some people send me demos, friends of mine, hey, would you put drums on this? I'm like, yeah, no problem. So I I have a, you know, I, I shouldn't really make a business out of it. I should put my, I should put my thing, out, what do they call it? I put my uh, plaque out and say, hey. Yeah, you know, you're, hang gonna, your shingle. Hang a shingle, that's the word. Yeah, Thank you. Yeah. Hang a shingle so maybe I should do that. And people want to like get in touch with me and like uh, have me put up drums on your demos. I, I could do stuff like that. That's so really it, fun. It's typically um, you're recording drums for stuff there. You're like, you're not necessarily like mixing, mastering kind of. I don't do any of that stuff. I'm yeah. not, me personally, I don't, I'm not interested in being a mixing engineer. I, 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 during the pandemic was a really golden opportunity for me as an artist to learn how to record the drums. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, so absolutely by far the best thing that ever happened to me as a drummer because you there's the feedback loop you have when you record yourself and listen to it back is the most power because the recording brings out exactly what you did not yes. what you think you did what you actually did and as a drummer as any artist you're always trying to get close the gap between yep. what you imagine you did and what you actually did. Yep. You know, great musicians, there's very little gap between, there's no gap between, you know, a great musician who can just like, and yeah, they, the communication is direct. For me as a drummer, the art of recording and putting a drum beat on a song, you have to, it's very, you have to, I have to get there. Like I have to yep. try one thing and refine it and refine it. Some guys get it right away. I'm the kind of guy I imagine it, I play it, I'm like mm, close, but no cigar. And you know, it's like in the rain, you have to sort of, it's a little drums are interesting because they move in time. You know, it's like a like it's a sculpture that moves. So you have to, you know, make the dynamic right and make sure every motion, it's like, you know, no false moves. Like I said, you want to try to make everything very elegant. Yeah. And you know, and make sure you're focusing on the right things, not on me, but on the song. So it's a really fun exercise for a musician to try to place yourself in. To a song like you listen to the song and you go hmm what would i what are the, what are the drums going to do in here they can do anything that yeah. i'm capable of doing and so it's really fun exercise to try to you know and i'll do you know i'll i'll do 15 20 25 takes to like get it right you yeah. know and then i'll send whoever you know i'll send you five different ones and like mix and match like if you like the beginning of that one and the end of this one yeah you know that's the great thing about digital technology i can send you 25 different things if i want you know if you want them to 
that. So yeah, I mean, it's a great process and it changed my drumming, my ability to really focus and be a concise, uh, more concise drummer and, 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 and uh, move toward, yeah, it was really a powerful thing for me to do. Uh, but I've only focused on drums. Uh, you know, I don't, and I don't even do EQ. I record everything yep. completely raw. I don't compression, nothing. I like whoever's going to mix it. I let you worry about that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, just like get, I'm, I'm about eight channels of drums and that's all. And, you know, I do other stuff too. I play the guitar a little bit and play the bass a little bit. So I have a bunch of, I play the piano a little bit. So I, you know, sometimes I can record multiple things, but for the drums, that's all I focused on. I wanted to learn. So I went through over two years Again, I started with like two microphones, kick drum and overhead. I did that for a while. Yep. And then I do above and one down. And then like, let me go to four. And how can I do five? So now I'm at like eight. Woo, I'm a big fancy drummer now. Yeah. So I went through the process of like, how do I add drums? How do I, sometimes you added another microphone and they got smaller. Hmm, that It sounds worse with I added this microphone. Sometimes you put a room mic in, you think it's going to sound big. And it just makes everything sound yeah. funky and weird. Does it help at all? Like, oh, okay, well, that's not working. So I went through all these iterations, a PZM at the back of the room, a, a mic pointing at the drum set, a mic point, pointing at the wall away from the drum set. Like, yeah. well, you know, so many things you can do. So it was a great uh, creative uh, uh, exercise for me. Opportunity, yeah. It's, it, you know, this has come up a lot over the past couple of years, having conversations like this, these little silver linings that came out of like this terrible, you know, worldwide situation we went through. Yeah. But it gave you an opportunity to explore oh, that. And to... Yeah, I feel so much more in, in control of what I do. And I have such a more precise understanding of my job. You get into the granular detail of it. It really, uh, I, I, it was one of the best things that ever happened. It was a huge silver lining for me. Very cool. Well, Ira, I want to thank you so much for your time today. I've really, really enjoyed chatting with you and getting to know you. And I have a great conversation. Thank you, Brad. Yeah, hearing uh, some of your thoughts on on dadhood. Um, yeah, appreciate your enthusiasm. And I, I always like to sort of end off, I'm going to put you on the spot, but by asking you if you have any advice out there for for dads, maybe new dads, or, or you know, it could wow. be anybody, you know, a, yeah. something you want to share. My only advice was, to, it was the thing that I was worried about, like, don't get overwhelmed, you know, everything day by day, like, you know, you're going to have a bad day where, you know, you drop your kid on their head or whatever, you know, <laughs> you know, someone's, you're not going to get everything right. It's okay. Like, you know, life is a complex thing and, you know, nobody's perfect. No, there's no perfect dad. You just have to be just, you know, be your best self. That's it. You know, like yeah. be a good person and, you know, like, you know, lean into it, you know, the dad experience, again, to me, was about learning to be less selfish, to be yeah. a little more selfless, to go come out of your own world of like me, me, me. I, you know, I want to be this. I want to do that. To get out of that, it breaks you out of that cycle. It's one of the most powerful, positive things, energies that can happen in your life to, you know, to have this beautiful responsibility for, for your, you know, for your progeny. It's, it's a fantastic, uh, 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 complex, positively life-changing experience. So lean into it. Don't, you know, don't you, I just, the anxiety, all those anxieties that I had, we went to our classes to, you know, make sure we knew how birthing and all this stuff. I was, we were so worried, like, oh, we yeah. can do Right, we were reading all the books. Yeah, the uh, little details and the yeah, yeah. The swaddling and, you know, and the some diapers. Of those books, I gotta say, the, the best book we had a book about how to sleep train your kids so they yep. go to bed. 
that was one of the, that was a good book um 10 10 weeks to 10 10 hours sleep in 10 weeks or 10 weeks or something like that or 10 days i don't know what it was uh very great anyway so yeah all those anxieties that we had you know they on a day-to-day -day basis yeah things go wrong listen we you know no sooner had she been born you know she was like there was a jaundice thing we had to go to the hospital yeah you know, you're worried now then yeah you're, you're gonna worry about stuff too like you're gonna be i guess was that movie like you never you never scored the goal? It was that movie Parenthood with Steve Martin years ago. Yeah. And James Robards is a beautiful monologue where he talks about the fact that he, you know, with a kid, they never, you know, no matter how old they get, they're still your kid. Yeah. And you never get to you never get to spike the ball. Like, ah, you know, I did like, it. you're always yeah. worried about, you know, are they out late? Are they, you know, are they getting enough sleep? <laughs> you know, like yeah. with, you know, that's going to be your charge for the rest of your life. And you know, but that's but you're you're okay with that because it's someone you really desperately loved so deeply. You've never, yeah, the love you have for a child. There's no, you know, that's that thing that the thing you can't explain to somebody. You're like, oh, everyone says, you know, when you're good. Uh, but it's you know, it's it's trite, but it's absolutely true. It's a it's, it's a fundamental thing. You can, it changes your whole brain. It's fantastic. It's a fantastic thing. And, uh, and, you know, lean into it. It's, you'll be great at it. Yeah. I, oh, I love that. Thank you so much. And I just, again, want to thank you. All right. That was Ira Elliott from Not A Surf on the Rad Dad Show. Thank you so much, Ira, for joining us. And thank you for listening. If you like this episode, it would mean a lot to us if you drop us a review on iTunes or Spotify. And if you're looking for more Rad Dads content, find us wherever you get your podcasts or give us a follow on social media. Follow us. Tell us what are your favorite Not A Surf memories? What are your least favorite Beatles songs? Did you have fears about becoming a dad too? On Instagram, you can find us at at rad underscore dads underscore show. And on Facebook and Twitter. And hey, here's something new for 2023. We're on TikTok at at rad dad show all three of those at rad dad show and hey you can also head over to youtube to watch all these interviews as well including this one wherever you're watching or listening don't forget to hit that subscribe button it helps so much lastly rad dads is first and foremost a community organization aimed at positive parenting you can check out what we do over at raddadsyeg.com that's raddadsyeg.com thanks for tuning in in the meantime and in between time stay rad